Um, hey, this is our last week, as, as I mentioned. So this is week eight in this uh, particular series that, that we've been doing and looking at. And so um, first also want to, want to thank uh, Kristen, um, Rebecca, Helen for the snacks, and I see other people helping to fill, and communion, Celeste, uh, Clifford, Tina, really grateful for so many people who kind of make this happen. Thankful for our band that shows up every evening at like five o'clock and practices and, and plays. Can we just thank all of them real quickly? Thank you guys. So, so tonight we're going to be finishing the series, Questions That God Asks. We're going to be looking at one particular one, which was, it was pretty unique. It was a question that, that Jesus asked to his followers. And I want us to feel the question to us, because he, 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 he put it on all of his followers. If you have your Bibles, turn them on or open them up to John chapter 6. We're going to read a lot of scripture tonight. Um, the Gospel of John... John builds his gospel around seven I am sayings that, that Jesus made. That's kind of how he constructed it all. Each one of the gospels is sort of a different look at, at the life of Jesus, specifically the, the last uh, few years of his life and specifically the last few weeks of his life. And John builds his gospel around seven times that Jesus does something like physically you know, concrete and then makes an I am statement about it. For instance, like chapter six, first we're looking at, he says, I am the bread of life, after he feeds them with this bread. Uh, chapter eight, he says, I am the light of the world. Chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep gate. Uh, chapter 10 also, he says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, I am the way the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine. Okay? And we're going to talk like really kind of exalted, if, you know, possibly depending on who he is, seems almost like ludicrous statements. <laughs> They're so high, like I'm, I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm, I'm way up here. And so the first one we're going to look at tonight is the first one that he says, where he says, I am the bread of life. So in John chapter 6, if you want to open to that, um, let me, let me kind of give you some context so you understand the mindset of his listeners, meaning all of the, he's got a huge following by this point. He's doing miraculous signs. There's, we read at this particular place, that his community, many of them his disciples, hundreds and hundreds, is 5,000 minimum. It says 5,000 men, probably women and children. Could be 10,000, could be 15, depending. Many of them are following him. They're devoted to his teachings. They're calling him teacher. You're my teacher. They're calling him rabbi. So what's, what's going on? We're going to uh, get to, we're going to start in verse 20, 25, where he's at Capernaum. He's going to teach in the synagogue there. And you also have to realize the time of year, it's Passover. Okay, so Passover is coming up. It's this big, big festival. And so um, if you think about what, what was Passover celebrating, do you remember? Yeah, the exodus, when the, the angel passed over all the homes of the Israelites and their firstborns lived, and then they, they were, through Moses, uh, they were freed, and they went out, and then they had this desert wandering, of course. And so this is what they're thinking about. They're reading scriptures, 
because they're preparing themselves. They're reading scriptures about the story, okay? And you have to realize too, when you think about, as Jews talked about what Moses did, you know, that Moses did many miracles, God did through him, but the two biggest were this, the splitting of the sea that they walked through, remember, and then the Egyptians went in and that it swallowed them up. So this water event was one of the biggest, and then the second biggest was when they were wandering in the desert, what was it that when they were hungry, what did God provide for them? Yeah, manna, right? It's just like bread. You know the word manna just means, what's that? It really does. That's what manna means. Um, they, they're just like, it's weird. It shows up every morning. It said it like falls from heaven, and it's there every morning, and we're to collect it every day except on the Sabbath, and so he provides twice the amount on Friday, and we collect that, and, and we eat it. So for 40 years, he did this for them. So this is in their mind. And um, then, then you, you build on to that. There, there are um, prophecies. Deuteronomy chapter 18, God gives a prophecy that Moses is going to die, but someone is going to come after Moses. He tells the Israelites, far in the future, he said, he will be like this Moses. He'll be similar to it. And so be looking for this one. Listen to his words. He will guide you. He will show you a light. And so there's that promise. But then by the time of the first century, the, all of these concepts have built and they're waiting. Let, let me read for you a first century AD passage of a Jewish writing. It's not Jewish scripture, but it's, uh, it's, it's part of um, the Jewish pseudepigraphal text, which is a fun word to say, right? Um, it's, it's a text, um, 2 Baruch, chapter 29, verse 6. It says, this is this prophecy. This is what the Jewish mind in that day is expecting when the second Moses comes, this prophet. It says this, And those who have hungered shall rejoice. Moreover, also shall they behold marvels every day. So think about what they're thinking, okay? For the winds shall go forth from before me, this is supposedly God speaking, to bring every morning the fragrance of uh, aromatic fruits, and at the close of every day clouds distilling the dew of health. Now listen, here it is. And it shall come to pass that the self-same time that the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high, and they will eat of it in those years. Okay? So, John chapter 6, the very beginning of it, we didn't read it, we're not going to read it. Jesus, if you have your Bibles, what does Jesus do? What does the heading say? He feeds the 5,000 with, with bread, okay? What do you think the community is thinking right now? What are they, what are they expecting? What are, they th are, are you seeing it? Do you see what I'm saying? This is the guy. In fact, they say that after he feeds them, they go, is he the prophet? That's what that means. Is he that one? The one that we've been waiting for? The one that has been prophesied will come and he's going to just meet all of our... He's going to feed us for like 40 years just like Moses did. He's going to meet all of, all of our needs. This is the guy. So the, as, he, as he does this, we read that immediately afterwards, Jesus gets his disciples and he says, you guys get in the boat and go across the lake, like head, head west. And then he ditches them. <laughs> And the reason why we're, we're told he did that is because he knew that they were going to, by force, make him king. This is the guy. If, you know, we will use him for our political purposes. We will take him and make him do 
what we want in terms of politically, socially. And so he does this. Uh, the disciples get caught in the storm. I wish I could say more about this, but, but there's, John definitely wants the reader to see this. They get into the water. Remember the two biggest miracles of Moses are the, the water and the feeding. Okay, so Jesus has done that. The disciples get into the boat. Rocky, it's bad, bad weather. They think it might go over. Jesus comes walking to them, and immediately it's stilled. He, he, he wants the reader to see. There are all these like, oh. See, they've got all these like movies playing in the back of their head. Oh, I know that. That sounds a lot like the Exodus story. <laughs> that sounds a lot like that. And so they get to the other side, and they arrive at Capernaum. There's uh, going to put a picture up on the screen. This is the current site today of Capernaum. You can see the, the white building kind of on the left. This is the synagogue. Now, this is limestone, which they are, those of you who were with, with me in Israel, a couple of you guys out there, we, we visited this, right? We saw this. This is, a, this is a synagogue from like the second, a few centuries later, but what's so cool is the, the base of it is the actual um, foundation of what the synagogue would have been that in this story right here, this is where Jesus is in. If you go to the, the next, next picture there, you can see that that's the actual stone, the basalt, the black stone. That's what was the foundation of what that temple would have been built with. It's a beautiful, beautiful site. This is where Jesus comes to. He's gone across the lake. Sea of Galilee is like uh, six miles from one side to the other. They've gone from the east side to the west side. They've arrived here, and he starts teaching them. But quickly, those 5,000, maybe 10,000, 15,000, where'd he go, right? Where's Waldo? And so they find him. They find he's, oh, he's in Capernaum. They go over there, and they show up, and this is where we pick up in John 6, 25. Start reading with me, if you would. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, remember, these are his disciples, many of them, thousands. Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Verily, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that will spoil, but for food that endures to life eternal, which the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite name for himself, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him the Son of Man, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what, what, must we, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one sent or sent down. So they asked him, what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Now listen, listen to what they're asking for. Think about the... <laughs> Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, that is, it is written, he gave them food from heaven. You see their expectations? <laughs> you're going to do this too, right? Because you're that guy. That's, that, that's what you're going to do. So they, uh, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you this bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you, he's reframing it now, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. He's, he's kind of, he's jumped the tracks. He's talking about something else. Sir, they said, always give us this bread, right? Uh, meet our needs ongoing in this way, our immediate needs. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread 
of life. What? That's weird. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. That's kind of reminiscent. You remember the story of Jesus meeting that woman at the well, and he has a similar line of conversation about thirsting. He says, I can give you a kind of drink that you'll never thirst again, and she's like, sounds good, where's it at? But as I told you, you have, here's a key word, if you circle words in your Bible or underline, seen, okay, we're gonna pick this up. You have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven. He, their concept, that's what manna does, right? Manna falls. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall, not lose, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks, there's, there's the image again, okay, seeing looks, everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have that life eternal, and I will raise him up on the last days. At this, the Jews, these are his followers, there began to grumble about him because of this, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus responds, stop grumbling among yourselves. Jesus answered, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will, for, will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, unless, and this is the shock, this is sort of the, ugh, what? Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. On hearing this, many of who? His disciples. His, this doesn't mean the 12. You guys realize there are more disciples than just 12. There were 12 apostles. There are many, many disciples. At this, his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? 
The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. That's interesting. John says, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to the 12, and he says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter, I, I, I love Peter's answer. Oftentimes Peter says dumb things. <laughs> Here he says something pretty cool. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of that eternal life that you were talking about. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, thought, uh, who though one of the twelve was, was later to betray him. This is probably the moment that Judas had that turning point. And we often wonder, like, why did he do it? Well, a lot of them did it right here. And this seems to be, John seems to allude, this was a pretty key feature in Judas doing that. So what, what is Jesus saying here in, in this text? While, while a lot of commentators suggest, well, he's just talking about the Lord's Supper. That's possible. There's maybe likely an allusion to it. He hasn't instituted the Lord's Supper. Beyond that, he uses language that no other gospel author records Jesus. Jesus uses like the word, there are two Greek words for like this. One is soma, that's what we translate body. And then there's a more of a gritty uh, sark, it means flesh. And that's what he uses here. Unless you feast on my flesh, it's almost grotesque picture, right? Like many of Jesus's parables and stories, they're meant to either make people go, or what do you mean by that? I mean, you know, what's, huh? Don't comprehend. <laughs> and that's something he seems to be doing here. So uh, th this is just about the point where, so if, if it's just pointing to communion, it's a way more graphic way of saying it. It's a weird way of saying it. So I think there's more there. I think what Jesus is saying, here's what I think he is essentially saying to his followers, is that you think you know what you really need. See, he's, he, he's going against this assumption. You think your obvious need is your primary need, which makes sense, right? I mean, think about yourself. What... I wonder if you were to even write down on a piece of paper, what are your most obvious needs? Is it physical health? Um, is it self-discipline? Is it a job? Is it finances? Is it status? You know, I want to be kind of viewed as a certain way. Is it education? Like, all of us have the most obvious needs, right, in our lives. And those are the things that, for me, take up much of my, that's what I see in the day. That's what I'm going after. That's what I'm working on. That's what I'm pursuing are my most obvious needs because I assume my most obvious needs are my primary needs. And Jesus is challenging that. Now, are, these, are those needs necessarily bad? No, 
Of course not. <laughs> They're bad when I assume the obvious needs are my primary needs is the idea. But again, most of us go through with life and our day where that, that's my focus. That is, in fact, my goal. I'm driven by my obvious needs. They, they absolutely drive me. So what Jesus exposes here is what people really want from God. He's saying, see, many of us, I go to God for my obvious needs, and that's my focus. But I never, see, remember, Jesus' questions always kind of make a person go, what's going on here? Like, what's, what's really the case? What's really going on inside me? So Jesus is pushing to say, but do you know what your most primary, core, essential, fundamental need in life is? And I don't think you do. <clears throat> so, question, how many followers does Jesus start with at the beginning of chapter 6? About, at least? At least 5,000. How many has he got now? This is, this is like the worst church growth strategy in the world. Like if I wrote a book like this, I'd sell like, like my mom would buy a copy. That'd be the only person who would buy a copy of, of, of my book. No, no one's going to embrace this kind of church growth strategy or this model. It seems absolutely ludicrous, but Jesus' actions actually thin out his followers. It's really interesting that there are some fascinating trends in the American church as far as its movement and growth. And there's a guy, I don't know how many of you guys have heard of Ed Stetzer before. Ed Stetzer, um, he, he holds the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair of Church Mission and Evangelism at Wheaton College. And he's the executive director of the Billy Graham Center, which is also at, at Wheaton. And he's done a, a lot of good research on church culture trends. Um, he wrote one book, which I encourage you to get very recent. I think it's his most recent ones. One, and it's, um, it's called uh, Christians in an Age of Outrage. Um, and it was convicting for me <laughs> hearing, because he talks about this idea of, are you being discipled by your social media? And I was like, Oof, shut up. I don't want to think about that. Um, and so he's saying, how do we as Christians engage in a culture where everyone is outraged, everyone's screaming? And he says, do we jump on that same way, method, or do we do something else? But Ed Stetzer, in, in this book, he, he draws a little, or talks about this idea of the culture. I'm going to try to represent it here. You guys see that okay? He says... So he talks, I'll talk about a couple different groups in, in America. Um, he says, um, we're not seeing the death of Christianity in America. He says there are a lot of comments, about, oh, Christianity's, you know, the church is dying in America. He says that's simply not the case when you look at, at the research. But the landscape is shifting there, there are cultural shifts and church shifts. And what we're witnessing is the demise of what he calls casual or cultural Christianity. And he says that's not necessarily a bad thing. Which, you know, when I first read that, I was like, I don't know if I agree with that. Um, but he, he talks about one group in particular, the nuns. I don't mean N-U-N-S. Um, nuns would be people who, when they take a survey, which of these religious groups do you affiliate with? They write None. So this, these, are, these are the nuns. The nuns make up almost, a little less, almost one in every four of Americans, a little less than that. 
but I'll just, I'm doing round figures here. About 25% of America fall into this category where they would say, I have no religious affiliation whatsoever at all. And the nuns are on the rise. Um, about a third of, of millennials, according to a Pew Research, about a third of millennials um, fall into the category of nuns in this way. Um, and th- they're, they're disassociating themselves with every way of organized religion or of God in any way. And again, Stetzer says this isn't necessarily a bad, a bad thing. But what it is, he thinks at least in part, he suggests that it's a sign that, that, the, that we are clarifying what it means to be Christian. And so he also, and then he goes to point out this, 75%, so that's just the rest here, um, when they fill out surveys, they mark the box Christian. Now, you hear that right away, and you're probably like, that's baloney. There's no way there's 75% of America are, are Christians. But a um, number of reasons why they do that. Um, sometimes they, they've been told, well, I'm an American. I guess that's kind of weird. Maybe it's a Christian nation or so. I'm, yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I'm an American or something <clears throat> like that. Um, or, or they just think, well, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Muslim, I guess I'm Christian, right? There are a number of reasons why people might answer that, but Stetzer also does something that's really helpful. He says, we can actually distinguish three different groups in, in this other section here. There's one group, what, what he calls cultural Christians, Okay? Cultural Christians. These, this first category of people, um, they would say they're Christians maybe just by their heritage. Uh, maybe they have some sort of a, you know, tradi- oh yeah, my, my, my great-grandfather was, uh, was a preacher. Oh yeah, we're, we're Irish Catholic. Or we're, you know, something, you know, Southern Evangelicals. That, that's sort of the culture. So the culture tells them you are a Christian, whatever exactly that, that might mean. Um, this makes up also about 25% of, and, and so it's, it's about, it's a third of the 75%, does that make sense? But 25% of the overall American population. Um, the next group is congregational Christians. Now, this group is similar to the uh, cultural Christians. However, they have some connection to congregational life. It could be something as simple as, well, yeah, I got married at Timberline Church. So if they're ever asked, what's your church? They would go, yeah, I guess Timberline Church is my church, right? Because I got married there. Um, or, you know, oh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, Timberline Church is my church. Uh, I go every Christmas. I go every Easter. I'm a... I'm a Christ, you know, person, Christmas and Easter kind of thing. Um, so there, there's some connection there. However, they're, they're not practicing any sort of uh, real vibrant faith in any way. But we would call them attendees. You know what I mean by that? They rarely or whatever, they, they may attend. And then there's a, a and oh, and this is also same, about same amount. And then the third group of Christians... These are what he calls convictional Christians. Convictional Christians, 
are actually living their lives according to their faith. Convictional Christians would be people who would say, I have met God, he has changed my life, and my life since that time has been increasingly oriented around my faith. Um, And again, this also makes up about that 25%. Now, the numbers of the people, interestingly, this is about the same percentage as a study that was done in 1972. So the numbers of this group have really not changed if you, if you even just base it on regular church attendance. So what is changing? Well, this group is going, you know, the squishy middle, you might call it or whatever. This group is, it's, it's kind of forking. It's moving over here. It's beliefs, behavior, attitudes, thoughts, uh, worldview looks very much like this. And this section is also increasingly looking like that as well. And so again, research says that the, these convictional Christians, their numbers are not, they're, they've been pretty steady. There have been, you know, in the 80s, there was a bump. There have been times where there have been bumps, but they've been generally staying about the same. And so Christians often, and so people ask like, okay, why is that? Like, what's going on? Well, partially is Christians no longer have, sort of have the center and culture. They're typically a little bit more in the margins. And so there's kind of, well, you know, count the costs. Of, we're not persecuted by any means. But count the cost in terms of, is this something that I really want to be all about? And I don't think that we need to despair. And I like that Stetzer says the exact same thing. He says, you don't need to despair. Instead, we're gonna have an, you're going to have an increasing number of neighbors who are nuns, who are in this group, and who need to hear about the gospel, who need to hear about Jesus. And so he says, let's embrace the challenge before us in this new cultural way to actually engage very specifically in that way, which I love. It's hopeful. <laughs> but here's the thing, and I think this is what this passage tells us. In order to do that, in order to do that, we have to know why Jesus speaks of himself in such exalted ways. Otherwise, we will not be ready for the task at hand. Here's, here's basically Jesus' message, and I alluded to this earlier. Jesus' message in the Gospel of John is, I am awesome. I am ultimate. Um, again, these seven I am statements, they're grandiose. They're over the top, it seems. So here's my question. Why do I need to know that Jesus is ultimate and awesome? Like, why do I need to know that? Because he's saying it all the time. That seems arrogant. Why is he constantly telling me how fantastic he is? And here's what I would suggest the answer is. Because if I don't understand that, I will spend my entire life running around to find something to meet my needs. If I don't really believe that Jesus is ultimate, awesome, the best thing ever, then I'm going to be constantly running from like ever, you know, this thing to that thing in this frantic pace because I'm looking for something that's big enough to hold my soul. And he goes, no, no, no. There's nothing, there's no other game in town, Brent. I'm the only thing Jesus would say. And so otherwise I think, well, once I have you know, the perfect marriage, once I have this job, once I have that, once these things are in place, whew, it's going to hold my soul. 
it's going, it's going to work. But see, until I, until you know, and I mean like no, really no, really, really, really no, that Jesus is like way up here. He's absolute ultimate, like um, amazing. Until I really know that, again, I will just spend my days fruitlessly trying to find something to fulfill me. And what Jesus says is, only God is your good. Listen, listen to the words of um, C.S. Lewis. He wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, talking about this idea of the frustrated person who wants to be fulfilled but doesn't want God. And he says this, it's not simply that God has arbitrarily made us such that he is our only good. Rather, God is the only good of all creatures. But that there ever could be any other good is an atheistic dream. George MacDonald, in a passage I cannot now find, represents God as saying to men, you must be strong with my strength and blessed with my blessedness, for I have no other to give you. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. God gives what he has, not what he has not. He gives the happiness that is, not the happiness that is not. And then he says, three alternatives you have. To be God, <laughs> that's a hard one to do. To be like God and to share in his goodness in creaturely response, option two. And option three, to be miserable. These are the only three alternatives. It will, if I will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe can grow, which is God himself, look at how he ends it, then we must starve eternally. What a scary description of hell. Starving eternally. See, that's why Jesus is telling them, I am awesome. I am ultimate. Nothing will fulfill you like this. Because unless you get me, Jesus says, you will starve eternally. So what Jesus is, exposes here in his questions is that Jesus calls you to follow him, not admire him. Verse 26 tells us that they, they were wanting Jesus, not, not for Jesus himself, but so that he could meet their immediate needs. And he says, you're not after me. You're after my bread. <laughs> but I am the bread. Don't you understand? Jesus wants total commitment. Jesus is not about looking for people to come fill seats in the church as though it's like how many likes he got on social media. Like that's not the goal of God. He's not wanting attendance. He's wanting your whole heart, your whole life, everything. And so that's why he, he says this idea of, unless you have my life, see his life is his flesh, and, unless you have that inside you, you don't have life. And nothing will fill it. Nothing will ever fill it. There are a lot of people who, again, who are attracted to Jesus, but don't want to follow him. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, the founder of modern India, while he was working in uh, South Africa as a lawyer, he wrote, he was very intrigued by Jesus. He was, he was attracted to, uh, he liked Jesus, but he wrote these words of himself in 1894. He said, I could, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and the divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. 
His death on the cross, while a great example to the world, sure, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. See, feast on Jesus? Give him everything? No, that, that's excessive. That's too much. I'll take a little bit of Jesus. But everything? No, no. So here's, here, here's my question to us is, are you, am I being fed by God? I don't just mean in little bites. <laughs> are you being regularly, significantly fed by God. See, in verse 53, Jesus said to them, very truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in me. See, Jesus said, you've seen me, but you still don't believe. The seeing thing is kind of a big deal here. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 12, God says to Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, you're, you're, you're living among a rebellious people, the Israelites. He said that they have eyes, but they can't see. They can't see. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus picks up on that same thing and he says um, that there are people whose hearts are so callous because they've closed their eyes. This is why he constantly says, those who can see, see. <laughs> Do you have eyes to see? And that's the question for us. Now, you might think to yourself, okay, I guess I, guess I just got to really try hard to see. <laughs> I got to really try. No, why not? Because you can't. You can't see. I can't see. Verse 44, we read this. Jesus said, no one can come to the Father unless, I'm sorry, no one can come to me, can't see, unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. I wonder, do you see how absolutely splendorous Jesus is? Because if not, here's my challenge to you. Ask God to give you eyes to see the arresting beauty of the person of Jesus. Just trying harder will never work. It'll never work. I want you to watch a quick video. It's a little over two minutes. There's a, there's a man by the name of Wal, uh, William Reed. He's a, he was a bodybuilder from New York. William Reed, he's 66 years old. William Reed was, was born colorblind, extremely colorblind, and so for 66 years he hasn't seen the world. And his, on his birthday, 66th birthday, his family went in and bought him these special new glasses that they hope will allow him to see color. Take a look at this. Birthday baby from all of us. Happy birthday. What is this? Put them on. Put them on. Put them on. The sunglasses.
How does it look? Weird. Look at the balloons. <laughs> Can you see with our eyes now, baby? Can you, what colors you see? Those. You see colors now? Oh, the trees are neat. <laughs> 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 now you have rose-colored glasses, baby. Now you see with our eyes. Do you like the balloons? <laughs> Turn around. What about the flowers on the house? <laughs> oh my goodness. It doesn't look like mud. <laughs> it looks like brighter mud. <laughs> That's how I want to see Jesus every day. That's how I want to see his world every day but I can't just try harder to see. I have to be given glasses by the one who can enable me to see, who can put his life inside me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, many of us, maybe tonight, maybe at different times, have, have discovered, maybe by choice, maybe by neglect, but that our eyes have dulled to the person of Jesus. Maybe, maybe our hearts have become calloused. Maybe, maybe there's a cynicism in our faith. Father, would you draw us afresh, draw us anew to the person of Jesus? Would you feed us with that life that Jesus talked about, that he promised? Would you feed us with, with that? God, would you empower us to walk moment by moment in a joyful relationship with Jesus throughout each day that we have. And God, would you remind us that you love us? Remind us that you're on our side, that you're coming after us, and that you are relentless. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.